If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. Believe it or not, Psalm 41 brings us to the close of the first five books within the Psalms. You say, wait a minute, that would be uh, incorrect because we're at Psalm 41, and so that's the 41st book of the Psalms. But really, in a sense, that is not true because if you have read the Psalms by going through them, whether um, in their consecutive order or you've actually done uh, a more in-depth study of the book of Psalms, you know that at the start of certain sections, or we might even say subsections of the Psalms, you'll find the phrases book one and two and three and four and five, and there was an arrangement by those who originally put these psalms in the Psalter together, and they decided to break them up into five books. There are five books within the psalms, and Psalms 1 to 41 is the first book within these five subsections. Uh, psalms 42 to 72 makes up the second book. Psalms 73 to 89 is the third. Psalms 90 to 106 is the fourth book. And Psalm 107, all the way to the end, Psalm 150 make up the fifth and final book. And so if you've ever wondered that, you're reading along and say, for instance, you come to the end of chapter, uh, excuse me, you come to, to the end of Psalm 41 and you find yourself seeing in Psalm 42 this phrase, book two. And you might be saying, what does that mean? What is book two? And these arrangements are arranged with a purpose and to communicate certain ideas and certain concepts and certain subjects. And we know that these are the divisions that were intended between these psalms because each of the last psalms, that is the last psalm in each of these five book arrangements wrap up the entire subsection. And I'll show you this. This is, a, this is kind of a little fun idea for us to look through before we actually get into Psalm 41. These verses that are at the end of the last book of each subsection actually give us a kind of hallelujah finish, a kind of praise finish. It's like in these five subsections of the Old Testament, benedictions that close each of these books of the Psalms. For instance, look at verse 13 of Psalm 41. Verse 13. Almost in a sense, it's coming as though it's coming out of nowhere. You finish verse 12 of Psalm 41, and then you read something that looks like it's completely out of the blue. And it says this, Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And the reason that verse is there is because it officially is telling you as a reader or as a singer that this is the end of book one. For instance, look for the end of book two. If you were to go, for instance, all the way over to Psalm 72, Psalm 72, here you find another of these doxologies or these benedictions in Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. 
This is the end of the second book section, and it says almost the same thing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And so what you might do is if you have a pen or a marker, you might either underline this or, or mark with this through your marker or circle it or do something that helps you identify that this is the end of book two. And you immediately go into Psalm 73 and you read from Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 89. And at the end, sure enough, in Psalm 89, verse 52, it's the end of the third subsection of the Psalms. And this is what it says. Very, very familiar. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And that's a, that's a device. That's a way not just of marking the end of a subsection of the Psalms, but it's actually intended for you and for me to say in our hearts after we've sung that the Lord is to be blessed and that He's to be praised and that we should say amen and amen, which means let it be true. Let it be true. All of these things that have been sung about our Savior God, amen and amen. Let it be said. Let it be done. You have the same thing at the end of Psalm 106, verse 48. That's the fourth ending. Verse 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise God the Lord. And then, sure enough, Psalm 150, one of the last verses, closes out the fifth and final book of the Psalms, the whole Psalter itself, verse 6, Psalm 50, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then the Psalms are done. And these are like markers along the road or the path of when a worshiper was to be singing to Yahweh, he was to be praising his God, he he was to be praying through these psalms, and as he comes to those ends, he finds that God is so magnified, so glorified, that we are to stop and have a benediction of praise to our God. And that's how these psalms are put together. Now, if you're going to ask me uh, what are some of the thematic markers that give us a sense of these psalms and why they're compiled the way they are and uh, what makes you know, book one different from book three or book two from book four, well, that's for another time. In fact, scholars have really, really worked hard, and I mean very, very hard, in their literature, in their books, in their treatises, as they try to explain what are the differences in these five books? And a lot of ink has been spilled about what they mean and how they have been arranged and what these themes are. And uh, some of the greatest minds have not been able to come to a consensus about some of these things. But one thing we know, at the end of each of these so-called books, we have the command to praise the Lord. And it's really a lot like 
New Testament benedictions. For instance, go in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You have something that's very, very similar here. This is a doxology of praise to God, which I said is much like the benedictions that we've just read in these psalms, including Psalm 41.13. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. This is, this is the last thing that Paul wants to tell the Corinthians, and this is what he says. Chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, that's a praise. That's a benediction. Just like Yahweh is to be praised in these Psalms of the Old Testament, so God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is to be praised and to be affirmed. I even read, didn't I, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, as we ended our ministry of the Word last Lord's Day. And this is a benediction of praise to God. It's, it's referring to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, here's another one. And these are just two from the New Testament that give us a sense of the benedictions that complete or put an amen or a crescendo on some of these New Testament books, like 2 Corinthians 13 and Hebrews 13. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Here's a benediction. You may have been very, very familiar with this one. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a benediction of praise. This is This is the New Testament way of talking about the praise of our God. This is what we're called upon to do. So as we come to Psalm 41 tonight and the end of this first subsection of the five books of the Psalms, let's study this particular Psalm in some detail. If I were to outline this Psalm, we could say it has uh, several major outline points to it. And the first one is this. Number one, God blesses those who bless others. God blesses those who bless others. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 41. In the Hebrew text, of course, the very first verse is actually the superscription to the choir master, a psalm of David. We believe that this is an inspired superscription that tells us that David is the author of this psalm. And in our English texts of Psalm 41, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. What's David referring to here? What's he saying? Well, as King David comes to the end of the first major subsection 
of the psalm, Psalm 41, he first speaks of the fact that Yahweh blesses those righteous men and women who diligently seek to bless others in their various needs and in turn are blessed themselves in their needs. That's the whole point of Psalm 41, verses 1, 2, and 3. God blesses those who bless others. Does that sound familiar to any one of you? Does that sound familiar in terms of what the Lord Jesus himself said in the Beatitudes? Turn over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. That's the famous beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached. The Lord Jesus Christ was preaching, and he begins with the Beatitudes, and then, of course, goes all the way through the rest of chapter 5, as we've seen it in our English Bibles, and then chapter 6, and then chapter 7. All three of those chapters are reserved for that greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus starts out with the so-called Beatitudes. And what David says here is precisely what the Lord Jesus is preaching in this great sermon in Matthew 5-7. Matthew 5-7, blessed are the merciful. Notice how it starts out. Blessed, Psalm 41-1, blessed, Matthew 5-7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. This is certainly tied, isn't it? To the so-called golden rule, which Jesus taught us near the end of this great sermon. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Matthew 7, 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says, everything that's bound up in the law and the prophets is contained in a golden rule like this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, if you go back to Psalm 41, you find that, in a sense, David is saying, blessed, enviable, marked out for blessing is the one who considers the poor. And maybe you could add the word weak. That's an alternate translation down in the bottom of uh, the ESV that I'm reading. You might even be able to include the concept of the needy. And David says that God promises to bless, to mark out, to minister to the one who considers the poor, the weak, and the needy. And when he does, as the characteristic aspects of his life, then here's what God will continue to do to reach out to such a man, such a woman who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, that is, the one who has sought to reach out and minister to others and to take care of their needs, well, in their day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Why? Well, one of the reasons, chief on the list, is because that person sought to minister to others. They focused not on themselves, but on the person who had the need. And when they sought to meet such a need, when they themselves came into a place of trouble, what does the Lord do? Does He turn away? Does He turn a deaf ear, a blind eye? No. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers the one who considers the poor. 
Verse 2, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. And because he's maintained, he's kept alive, he then turns around and continues to do everything to meet the needs of others. And when he does, he is called by all of the brothers blessed in the land. Blessed in the land. This is what David's saying. If you consider the poor, the Lord will bless you because you have worked to minister to them. You know, when you seek to bless others in their time of need, the Lord seeks to protect you and to keep you alive and to call you blessed. There might not be a greater moniker on the life of a believer than the word blessed of the land. You and I, as Christians, might very well be known by reputation as those who are all about helping others and not always looking out for our own needs. This is the, this is the mark of a Christian. Oh, how they love one another. Oh, how they seek to reach out to one another. And it's not as though it doesn't take a lot of effort and it doesn't take a lot of work, and maybe sometimes we're so consumed with meeting others, or it may be just the general challenges of life. Verse 2 says the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. He's working hard. Or maybe just the challenges and the vicissitudes of life are what make the one who's looking out for others tired and he's ministering or maybe according to the end of verse 2 you do not give him up to the will of his enemies maybe there are those who are working so hard that they're not always thinking about those who might want to do them in and when the enemies come after them God has a plan for all of them and he will restore him And he will sustain him on his sickbed, and in his illness, God restores him to full health. You say, every single time? In every single case? Remember, we've said many, many times, these are general truths. It is true that God takes care of his people. That's a true statement, isn't it? And it may not always be that every single person is raised from their sickbed, but one thing we know when it says... In his illness, he's restored to full health. You and I, because we know there's a life here and a life hereafter, that even if it doesn't come to us in the here and now, it will come to us in the perfections of heaven, right? We're always going to be taken care of. We're always going to be blessed by God. And if you're seeking to help those around you, the Lord, seeing your heart for the poor and the needy, will in turn sustain you even when you're on your sickbed and restore you to full health if that's His will, just as you attempted to help someone upon their sickbed. And as you sought to do whatever you could to restore them to the kind of health they needed. Remember this principle of the Christian life. God blesses those who bless others. Number two. Number two, God not only blesses those who bless others, but God forgives those who seek forgiveness for their sin. God forgives those who seek forgiveness for their sin. Look at verse 4. David readily admits 
as he has in Psalm 32, as he has in Psalm 38, as he has in Psalm 39. He says it again, Psalm 41, verse 4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. You say, that seems like it comes out of nowhere. Because David's just been talking in the three verses about helping the sick, helping the needy, trying to reach out, trying to be other-centered. And now he's talking about his own sin. What's going on? Here's the idea. What David is doing is he's covering all of his bases. He's doing a spiritual inventory of his life. And he asks in verses 1, 2, and 3 this simple question. Am I a person who looks out for others? How do I minister to others? How do I take care of them? And so he does a spiritual inventory in his life, and he says, I want to be other-centered. I want to reach out to the poor and needy. And when I do, God takes care of me in the process. And here in verse 4, he says, I know I have sin in my life. I know what I need to do is do a spiritual inventory of my life, and I need to work hard at seeing what's there, what's there in the deep recesses of my heart, and I want to do business with God. I want to confess my sin to Him. I know it's there, and I'll work hard uh, to sort of uncover it. You remember Proverbs 28, 13? He who hides his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will find compassion. What I like to say about Proverbs 28, 13 is this. The things we cover, God will uncover. But the things we uncover in confession, God will cover. And that's, that's what David is doing. It's, it's saying, I want to do business with God. I don't want to harbor any unconfessed, unrepentant sin in my heart. And isn't that exactly what Jesus condemned in the scribes and the Pharisees as he denounced them for their sham ministry to others? I mean, here's a guy like David. And David knows, as the king of Israel... He could make sure that everybody bows down to him and everybody does what he wants and that he's never the one who's admitting anything and everybody else has to come and grovel in front of him, right? He knows that. And that's exactly what Jesus confronted about the religious leaders of his day in the house of Israel. Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. These scribes, these Pharisees were doing exactly opposite of what David was doing here in chapter 41, verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, compare that and even contrast that to what Jesus said about the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23, verse 1. Matthew 23, 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're in charge. Uh, They have the the full authority. Uh, they're, They're reigning as the religious leaders right in Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
Strong denunciation, isn't it? Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. When I think of justice and mercy and faithfulness, I think about that poor man, that needy man, right? That weak man. And David says, I'm going I'm to work to meet such a need. And the Lord's going to take care of me, and He's going to protect me even against my enemies. And here are the very most religious people in Israel for whom the Israelites should be following. And Jesus is instead saying, don't follow what they're doing. Why? Because even though they should be working on justice and mercy and faithfulness, instead they're tithing mint and dill and cumin. They're they're taking the smallest elements of what they could give, give away, and they're giving just a little bit of it. He says this, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, verse 25, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. In other words, you, you have these, these profoundly sounding words and you're standing on the street corners with your phylacteries and you're praying long prayers, but inside your heart is nothing but a dirty dish. Your plate is filled with sin That's the opposite of what David's doing here in Psalm 41. Lord, be gracious to me. I'm going to acknowledge my sin to you. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, that's a strong denunciation. That's, by the way, the, not the meek and mild Jesus that you hear people say that's all he's about. Matthew 23, that's the Jesus you can't ignore. And what he's saying is right in line with what King David is saying about himself here in Psalm 41. Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. He's seeking to be right with God. In other words, I'm relying on my God to forgive those who seek forgiveness for their sin. And that's what I want. I want forgiveness. I want to be clean. I want that cup, that plate to be clean on the inside, even as I appear clean on the outside. Number three, number three in our outline list. God blesses those who bless others. God forgives those who seek forgiveness for their sin. And thirdly, God defends those who are being mistreated. God defends those who are being mistreated. And this is verses 5 to 9. This makes up really the bulk of this psalm. David is working hard to be other-centered. 
He's working not to focus on himself, but to try to reach out to the poor and the needy himself. He's trying to be a man above reproach because he wants to work on his own heart. He wants to confess his own sin. He's asking the Lord to be gracious to him. He's asking the Lord to heal him of those sinful issues in his life. And he's believing that the Lord will grant him forgiveness. And now, according to verses 5 to 9, he says this, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. This is, this is amazing. Here's David who's trying to help those who are in need. Here's David who's trying to readily confess his sins. And so what does he have? What does he have as a result? Well, at least initially, he's got enemies who in malice come to him, and maybe they say it in their hearts, even if they don't say it on the outside. When will he die and his name perish? How would you like to have friends like that? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. I can just hear it now. Oh, David, we can't wait until you're back on the mend. Not Oh, David, we hope you get well. And they're saying in their heart, I hope he dies. Maybe then we can be king. And then when he goes out, he tells everybody abroad, hey, David's David's about to kick the bucket. We ought to throw a party. Or how about verse 7? All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. This is, this is real life stuff, isn't it? This is what David was going through. And yet David is trying to minister to others. And right in the midst of his attempt to come to the aid of the poor and the needy, you now have those who are questioning his motives, seeking to stop him from doing good to others. You say, well, wait a minute. I mean, David wasn't lily white. He wasn't totally clean at all points and in every way. Well, sure. Sure, that's right. He was a human being with sinful ideas and failures, of course. But what he was was an honest man in so many ways. And he was reaching out to God and saying, I'm hurting because I've got these enemies on the attack. And while I'm trying to look to see the needs of those who are poor, those who are weak, I've got those who are looking at what I'm doing and seeing my circumstances and my trouble and my bedridden condition, and they want to do me in. And I am just trying to work on kindness. I'm just trying to work on helping others. You say, well, where where did David do this? Uh, Was there an an incident, an example, an illustration of David trying to be kind? Yes, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Earlier it was mentioned that 2 Samuel is a great place to go to see some of the background on David's life. And I agree. Look at, look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is, one of the, this is one of the most lovely chapters 
about the life of David that one could find. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says, And David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Now stop right there. Now who was King Saul? Was he a guy who was for or again David? He was again him. He was trying to put David to death day after day after day, month after month, year after year. David was running for his life for several years to try to get away from Saul. And do you think that if there were any descendants of Saul for David to do something with, he might be inclined to do all of them in? It's exactly the opposite. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember the Jonathan-David relationship? Remember they had a kind of love that transcended even the love of a man for a woman? There wasn't anything inappropriate with that. It's just talking about the strong bond of two men who are committed to each other and they're good. And he says, is there anybody in Saul's lineage, Saul's house, the progeny, that I might show him kindness for my friend Jonathan? Verse 2, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth. That's his name. Aren't you glad you're not named Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, why do you think he might have done that? Because he thought he was just going to be run through with the sword. Because kings of that day, when they won in battle and they ultimately vanquished their foe, what would they do? Especially with the king's people. They're, 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 they're very kin. They would put them all to death. Uh, 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 forever away from, from the assailants who tried to kill us. And so Mephibosheth comes and he tries to pay homage to David. He's probably scared to death. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore you to all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table oh just a few days what does it say always I'm going to always and forever bless you you can eat at my table anytime and he paid homage and said what is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
He's showering him with blessing. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What a chapter. You want to talk about the kindness of David? And now what he gets in return are the enemies of God who want to do him in. You say, well, that's easy because they're the enemies of God. Well, yes, but wasn't David's own son Absalom out to get him too? This is, this is a guy, David the king, who had nothing but trials and travails from within and without. And yet, he was a man who looked after the poor. And notice what it says in verse 8 of Psalm 41. They say, these, these naysayers, these enemies, the ones who are against David, they say, and here's now the, the rumor mill, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. That phrase, a deadly thing, it's the, the thing of Belial. You know Belial in the New Testament? It's another name for, for the devil. What is this? It's something like this, a poisonous thing, a deadly thing. Uh, an evil thing has come upon David. It's being poured out on him. God is judging him. God's, God's putting his finger of judgment upon David. That's what the naysayers are saying. And they're saying he'll not rise again from where he lies. He's never going to make it. He's never going to get off that sickbed. And yet, what does God do? God in His providence, when He looks out for those who are looking out for others and not themselves, He wants to raise him up. He wants to bring him back. And yet, David, he's in a bad way. And it can't get any worse, can it? Well, it actually does. Look at verse 9. David says, not just his enemies, but even my close friends friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. What a sadness. Not just the enemies of God, but somebody who was a close friend. Maybe Mephibosheth? Whoever it was, even a close friend of David Someone in whom David trusted, who ate at his table, has lifted up his heel against him. You say, what's, what's this um, lifting up the heel? Oh, this is, this is most interesting. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 25 that there was a birth of twins, namely Esau and 
Jacob? And do you remember that Esau was the firstborn? And that Jacob was holding on to his heel? Do you know that that probably started out as a word and a concept that the idea of having the rear guard of your little brother, you were going to protect him? You're going to be looking out for him as the younger would be serving the older? He was going to protect him. He was going to make sure that he was exalted. And is that what Jacob did to his brother Esau? No. He did the exact opposite. And do you know that that word, the very word even, Jacob itself, was turned into not a positive word for protection, but a negative word for deceiver. Treacherous. He's the treacherous man. And it got so bad. Listen to Genesis 27, verse 36. Esau said, when Jacob's father was blessing him, Esau, knowing that Jacob had deceived him a second time, says this, Is he not rightly, Genesis 27, 36, Is he not rightly named Jacob, which means takes by the heel, or perhaps in this context of Genesis 27, stealing his brother's birthright and his blessing, it means he cheats. If you look at your alternate translation in Genesis 27, uh, 27 verse 36, and it says, he cheats, is the translation of Jacob. For he has cheated me these two times, the birthright and the blessing. He took away my birthright, and behold now, he has taken away my blessing. That's what Jacob became known as a term. Treacherous one, deceiving one. And now you know what Psalm 41.9 means. There's a close friend of mine in whom I trusted, who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. He's a deceiver. Whoever this man is, he's a, he's a treacherous one. And did you know that this particular latter half of the verse that's talking about lifting his heel against me became so powerful as a concept of treachery and deception and betrayal that the Lord Jesus Christ himself uses the latter part of this very line to speak of Judas. John 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you, referring to all the disciples except Judas. I know whom I have chosen. I've chosen you 11. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. Here it is. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 41, 9. And do you know where that poignant scene would have taken place? The upper room. They're all having a meal together. They're all supping together. Supper. They're all having a meal together. They're having fellowship together. And Jesus says, in their very midst, one of you shall, what? Betray me. And it's Judas. Judas has taken the heel of the Savior in order to deliver him over to the Roman guards. 
This is, this, is, this is David's situation. We don't know who it is, but David knows because he calls him a close friend. You know that God takes up the cause of those who have been mistreated. I mean, he blesses those who bless others. And he forgives those who want their sins forgiven. And he also, he takes up the cause for those who are being treated like this. My friend, his, his treachery, God defends those who are being mistreated. Now, it may not always be in this life, but it will be in the life to come. God rights every wrong. He undoes every wrong, and He makes it right in His own sight. This is what Psalm 41 is designed to teach us. And there's a fourth point. God hears the prayers of those who are being mistreated. Look at verse 10. Psalm 41.10. Here's David's plea. Here's his answer. Here's his comfort. Here's his joy. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I might or may repay them. This is, this is his prayer. And by the way, depending on the verbal idea here in verse 10, David is either asking for present grace and strength for this battle against those who are mistreating him, or he's actually recounting a time in the past when God was, in fact, gracious to him and who heard his prayers and was gracious to him and raised him up to full health and strength. And as the king of Israel and on behalf of his own people who were being attacked by these foes, he took vengeance upon Israel's enemies. And he was right to do it. This is not a sort of personal vengeance. This is not a one-man vigilante force. This was David as the king, and he was repaying those who had come against him. And how does that happen? He prayed. He prayed, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And the Lord answered. The Lord heard the prayer of this man, David, who was being mistreated. Don't ever think that God doesn't hear your prayers. If you're a believer, if you know Him, and you're being mistreated, and you're asking the question, why? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you listen? Why don't you act? God hears the prayers of those who are being mistreated. He most certainly is. But you must suspend God's ways and will to the time in which He chooses to act. And that may not always be on our time frame. Here's the spiritual principle. God hears the prayers of His people who are being mistreated, and He comes to their aid. Do you remember when Scripture says that God heard the cries of the people when they were mired in Egyptian bondage? Do you remember He, he said, I have heard the cries of my people. How long were they in bondage? 400 years. 400 years. On somebody's timetable, they would say, that's not fair. 400 years? Are you kidding me? I can think of 40 minutes maybe, but not 400 years. No, God does this very thing, either in this life or in the life to come. 
He answers the prayers of those who are being mistreated. And then number five, God grants the requests of those who walk in integrity. God grants the requests of those who walk in integrity. Look at verses 11 and 12. By this I know that you delight in me. This is what David is saying to his Lord. By this I know that you delight in me. Not something inherent within David. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Why? Because I, David, and my people were a part of the apple of God's eye. We're we're his offspring. You, You delight in us, not for anything that we've done, but for your name's sake. That's what he's saying in verse 11. Verse 12, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. Again, David's not talking about works. He's not talking about the idea that that God is saving me and delivering me because of my own works. He's saying this, God, I want to be your man, and when you reward me for my integrity, it just exalts who you are. It just exalts the fact that you look at integrity and you say, it's a premium with me. And that's what David is doing. That's who David is. So much so that the end of verse 12, it says, And you set me in your presence forever. God providentially used David's desire for integrity to bless him and saw to it that David was blessed to be in God's presence forever. And that's what we call grace, right? That's what we call grace. And so we come to the end of the very first book of the subsection of Psalms 1 to 41. And we have this praise that we must give to God. Look at verse 13. God is praised for who He is. God is praised for who He is. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for being this kind of God. You are a God who blesses those who bless others. You're a God who forgives the sin of sin confessors. You're a God who who hears and who grants requests. You're a God who deals with our enemies either here or in the life to come. You're a God to be praised for who you are. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. It is true. Let it be so. Amen and amen. Amen. It's so appropriate to pray. So appropriate to pray now. Let's Let's gather together. Maybe because of our size, we'll just gather in a few groups, maybe a few groups over here, a couple of groups over here. And here's what I would love us to do tonight. Remember this morning, we talked about the idea of Philippians chapter 1, first initial beginning of chapter 2, how we are supposed to sort of adorn the gospel and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then I talked about evangelism, and I